Today we start to look at the biblical metaphors for church in the Bible. And uh, to catch you up to speed, last week we talked about one of the points of the church. Why God created the church. And that is to declare to the dark forces, the demons really... That God is always right and always good and always does the best thing. And over the next four weeks, we'll, in the book of Ephesians, look at these four metaphors that really describe what the church is by looking at church as these four different things. And, and I think what we'll see is really God's heart for the church and the way he designed the church. And if you've been around here, then you know that one of, one of my uh, driving forces of my life and my ministry and all that I do is to help people understand that there's commands that the Bible makes to the church. You look at the New Testament and, and God says these things that church is supposed to be about and church is supposed to do. And a lot of times we just blatantly disregard those. But over the next four weeks, we're not going to look at so much as uh, what God says we're supposed to do, but rather what we are. And I think out of that, as we see what the church is, we're going to find kind of God's heart for us, and we'll see some of the things we should be doing differently, and we'll be able to, to look and examine and ask ourselves the question, if somebody were to look at our church, the church in America, would they see this to be true? And the first of these metaphors is church as bride, and that's what we'll look at today. If you want to open your Bibles up to Ephesians 5, we'll look at 21 through 33. And, uh, it's a simple metaphor because it's something that we all understand, and at least at the beginning, if you've been married, at the beginning of your marriage, then, then you at least had an idea of what a great spouse looks like. And, and you, you had all these high expectations and these high hopes. And if you're uh, not married yet and you're just like, you like people, you know, and but you, th- you kind of understand this metaphor already because you think they're perfect. And it's like, oh, she could never do anything wrong ever. She can, just so you know. You understand this idea and this concept and what it is supposed to mean for us. And so I'm just going to break it down for us. I'll start in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, context is important for this first kind of setup verse here. Uh, that came out of nowhere. You think, well, that's not a very good book in the Bible. But, but context helps us. And so here's some things. Paul has been kind of, in my mind, it's one of the most rambly books that Paul writes in the New Testament. And where you look at a book like Romans, and it's very sequential, and it goes from one point to another. In Ephesians, Paul is just kind of talking about stuff. And it seems like he goes from one idea to another. He, he describes Christianity, what it is and what it's all about. He talks about unity between believers. He talks about Christian living and how we are supposed to live our lives different if we call ourselves Christian. He talks about the church and what the church is and what the church is supposed to do. He talks about the boundless riches that we have in Jesus and the great things that we have to be looking forward to. He talks about Gentiles being brought into relationship with God through the church something we talked about last week and he talks about god and so you see kind of all this jumbled up stuff and at the beginning of chapter five he says this follow god's example therefore as dearly beloved children and walk in the way of love just as christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to god so paul looks at this church in ephesus that's who he's writing to and he says hey i want you to follow the example of jesus And I want you to love each other so that God may be glorified. And then he goes on to talk about how we can love each other. And he talks about purity and goodness. And you can read those verses later. And then in 18 through 20, he says, Be filled with the Spirit. 
speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Speak and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then right after that, he says, submit to one another. Now, when you hear the word submit, you think about the word submit, it it conjures up all this negative stuff, right? I mean, isn't it kind of you're like, what's Chad going to say? He's going to make people mad. This will be fun. I'll talk to him about it later. And and I'll be like, hey, you made that. They were so angry at you today. Because the, the word submit just in our culture has a very negative connotation. Well, here's two things that you need to know right up front. First of all, the verb is in the passive form. That means that it's not that you cause somebody to submit, but rather it's the person's internal willingness to submit to somebody else. This is, this is key. And it's been read wrong for, for centuries because what has happened in the history of even church, but Western civilization, is that we've taken passages like this and we've made it so that one group of people submits another group of people. Primarily men submitting women, right? And so we look at the history kind of uh, of Western culture and you see up until recently that men just dominate women and they put them in their place to say it how it might be said. But what Paul says here is nothing like that. Paul doesn't say in the New Testament, go out and submit somebody. I mean, go out and and push them down and push them down and push them down until they do what you want them to do. Instead, Paul looks at us and says, submit to one another. I want you to do this out of the willingness of your heart. Now, here's the other interesting, fascinating, important thing for you to understand is that generally when we hear this word submit, we think about verse 22 and we almost jump right to 22 where it talks about wives submitting to their husbands, which we'll look at in a second. But verse 21 is not in reference to women. It's not in reference to wives. It's not in reference to spouses. It's in reference to a group of people that is called a church. Paul is saying to you to submit to everybody else in our congregation. He isn't, first and foremost, talking about submitting to your spouses. He is talking about you, who sit here in front of me today, submitting to the other people who sit on your left and your right and call Creekside Bible Church, for them was the church in Ephesus, your church. Now, what does the word submit mean? Well, first of all, you need to understand it was a military term referring to how soldiers would line up underneath a commander, how they would get behind him and do what he said. And the other part of it, the key component of it, is that it's really all about humility. It's about the willingness to say in your own heart of hearts, that person, what they need, what they want, what is good for them, what they think is best, is more important than what I think is best and what I want and what I need. We talk about submission, submitting. It's really just that. It's looking at another person and saying, you are more valuable. You are more important. What what matters to you should matter to me because it's, it's about you and it's not about me. And so when you read verse 21, just as we talk about church, kind of a side note to the overall picture that we'll see in 22 through 31, it's this, that when you look at your church and your involvement here in this church, Creekside Bible Church, if you're going to follow the command of Paul based on a whole scriptural reference to love, then you need to be a person who looks around and says, what can I do to make them more important and them seem more valuable and to put them above me and to lower myself? And truthfully... If you look around at churches, 
even sometimes in our own. It's all about what you think and what you want and what you desire and what's best for you, right? You talk to anybody who's gone from one church to another consistently, and it's always all about them. Well, they didn't do it this way, and so I was out of there. Well, they didn't do it. They didn't do that right thing, and so nah, I just couldn't be there, and I didn't like this guy, and so I left. And, and guess what I hear when you say that to me, because I have those conversations, is all you're thinking about is yourself. But the Bible says when you are in a church and you are part of a church, you should be thinking about everybody else. Now, this this has just, I mean, like a million different things. I could just stop and I could talk to you about why this is so important. But let me just like three of them right now. Let me just give you three things that I think are really important just based on verse 21 that really we're seeing change in our church, but we need it all the more. And, and, and if you're from another church and you're visiting or whatever, then, then you need to know this at your church too. Your church will be better if you listen. First of all, it means when you come on Sunday morning that it's not about you. You should not ever walk away from a Sunday service saying, that sermon wasn't very good today. Or even that sermon was great today. That should not be the point. Because it's not about how I fill you up. It's about what you do. You should never leave a church service examining the music. Oh, they didn't do as good today, or I wish they would have had drums today, or whatever it might be. That cannot be your attitude. You cannot, if you're going to follow the words of Paul, in my opinion, walk away from a church service going, hey, they didn't get the right food today at McMinniman's, and I wish they would have had those other brownies because those are way better. That is not submitting. What submitting is, is coming to church saying, what can I do to make this church service better? And when you leave here, your only question should be, what did I do to help other people in their relationship with Christ in the worship service today? You should never leave here judging, and I thank you for not doing this too often, how well I did, or how well Brandon did, or how well Angela did in getting things set up. You should walk away saying, was church good or bad? What did I add to it? How did I help somebody else sing louder? How did I help somebody else have a moment with God? What did I do to encourage and edify the people that sat next to me on Sunday morning? If you walk away and you say, was church good or bad today? That's fine. Go ahead. But don't make it based on what somebody else did. Make it based on you because you should be lowering yourself and making others more important. Here's another thing. If we are really going to submit to one another, then we need to be people who are striving to connect with others in our church. We talk about connection here a lot at Creekside Bible Church, right? And we think it's very important, highly underrated in the American church today. And we want you to connect. But a lot of times what happens, you've been there, right? You go, those people didn't even say hi to me today. If you're really submitting and making them more important, then I have a question for you. Did you say hi to them today? Right? I mean, did you did you say, well, they're so important that they need to know that they're loved and they're cared about and that I'm glad they're here. And so I'm going to walk across the room and I'm going to say hello. How are you doing today? If you are really going to submit to one another and we really believe as a church that connection is important, then you need to be a person who says, I'm going to seek to be connected, not just wait around saying, well, I'm the most important, so why aren't they connecting with me? 
And here's the third thing. You need to do something for your church. You need to be a person that serves your church using your gifts, something we just had a class about. But you cannot, if you're going to submit to others, say, you do all the work, I'll benefit from it, and then let me know how it's going. I'm going to sit around, I'm going to talk about how you didn't do it well enough, and that will be okay. No, you need to be a person that does something if you are truly going to make others more important in our congregation. This is imperative. This has to happen in congregations. We need to not look and say, well, there's some groups that submit and some that don't and all of that. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. But you need to be a person. Really hear me on this. Whether you ever, if you go to another church, fine, whatever. Just, Just, you need to be a person that looks at other people in your congregation and says, you're more important than me. And so how does that make me act on a, on a weekly basis, but even on a daily basis. That is key to being a church that God wants us to be. Now he moves on here. This is what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, here's here here here's the here's the big here it is right. I mean, oh nah. Um, And so here's the thing: you need to understand. The point of the passage is not marriage. In fact, if I was to flip to the very end of this verse five thirty-two, it says this: "This is a profound mystery." This is his summary statement. But I am talking about Christ and the church. And so for us to get hung up on what does this mean for a marriage is really to miss the overall point of this passage of Scripture. However, I'll make a couple of statements. First of all, this idea of wives submitting to their husbands seems way controversial in in our 21st century modern type of thinking, right? But for the first century person reading this, The man and the woman who were married sitting in a congregation hearing this in the church in Ephesus, there was nothing at all controversial about this. They, in fact, would have struggled more with what we'll read in a second. Husbands, love your wives. Because at the time, wives were treated as property. And so for a first century person, I'm not saying this is good, I'm just saying it's a fact. They would have heard this and they would not have batted an eye. They would have said, Paul, why are you telling us that? We already know that we are supposed to submit to our spouses. We already understand that we don't even have a choice in that matter. So why are you even telling us to do that? Now, here's here's the other really important thing. Wives, you should submit to your husbands. You should make your husband more important in your eyes. It's just the truth of it. We should all be doing that to each other, according to what Paul says. And so, therefore, wives, you should do that for your husbands. And I would even argue, if I could, that what Paul says next about husbands and the way that they are to interact with their wives basically says the same thing. He just doesn't use the word submit. I mean, he basically describes submission for about four verses when he talks about what husbands are supposed to do to their wives. And so basically, what we hear in Paul is this, that we should be, especially you wives to your husbands, looking at them and saying, you're more important than me. What can I do to lift you up to make your life better? Why does he single out women? Partly because God has set up marriage 
in a certain way and created gender in a certain way where men are supposed to be leaders and women are supposed to be followers. Not lesser followers, but followers. That's part of the reason. But here's the other reason, and maybe it's a reason that we've never thought about before. Maybe it's because men aren't too good at this. I mean, honestly, what he says next about giving up your life for your wife, that's submission in some ways. And he'll say that in a second. But I'll tell you, it's a lot easier for Bren to look at me and say, you're more important and to live her life in a way that demonstrates that than it is for me to do that for her. And I try, I try to make her the more important one in our marriage, but she's just naturally better at it. And I've seen that in other women as well. And so Paul understands gender and he understands that we have roles. That's clear in the New Testament. But I also think he just understands that this is what makes a marriage better. And we've gotten away from it in our modern culture. And guess what has happened? We see divorce everywhere, right? So maybe if we just took it seriously, what he says about marriage, women, you first. If you took this seriously and said, you are more important than me and I'll live my life as a reflection of that, then maybe we would see the divorce rate go down. But the point is not marriage again. The point is that the church is the bride of Christ. That's what it says here, right? I mean, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so throughout the New Testament, you see this picture. Church is the bride. Let me list, just listen, list some verses for you. I'll read them. 1 Corinthians 11, 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. That's Paul talking to a church in Corinth. John 3, 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now complete. Romans 7, 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to one another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. If you look at the book of Revelation, you see through the whole thing that the church is described as being dressed in white. It's a common theme. White and the church go together. Who wears white? Brides, right? And so you see in the New Testament this idea... That Jesus is the bridegroom, the husband, and the church is the bride that is waiting to be married to Jesus. It also says here that Christ is the head of the church. And let me just make three quick points. Christ is the head of the church. The church is his body. And Jesus is the savior of the church. These are three important things. But two of them we're really going to talk about uh, in the next couple of weeks. So I don't want to give that away. But let's just focus in on one right here. Jesus is our Savior. I want you to notice that there because it's really important, something that maybe is forgotten. What a church is, is a group of believers who gather together in the presence of God. And we look sometimes and we think about the organization of church and somebody can just go get their nonprofit status and they are now a church and, and so that's all you need and you can get your license to do weddings online and, and it's this no big deal type thing. But what Paul says here about Jesus is that the church really is a group of people who has been saved by Jesus because he died and he rose again. And when we separate, this is the truth and it happens far too often. You may be going, well, how can that ever be separate? I don't know. But when we separate the relationship with Christ and the organization of church, then we begin to lose what the church is really all about and, and actually what the church is, a group of believers 
who gather in the presence of God. And so for us, it is important to remember, even though it's implied sometimes in church, it is important for us to remember that we must always do church in a way that reflects the fact that Jesus is the one who saved us and we are a group of people who love him back. He moves on. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, again, the point here is not the love that a husband is supposed to have for his wife, but we see it in there, right? I mean, Paul says, I want you wives to submit to your husbands but then he describes this for the husbands he says i I want you to be people who love your wives as christ loved the church and here's the thing we know that christ loved the church so much that he died in order to create it right I mean, the story is this, if you don't know it. Jesus was in heaven as part of God. He is God. He came from heaven to earth. He lived a sinless life. And then he died on a cross, paying the punishment for everybody's sins. We talked about this last week. So that this thing called church could be created. That's how much he loved what we call the church. And it says to us who are husbands, that we are to love our wives that way that's profound it's not something i'm very good at generally love bren best when it's easiest but jesus loved the church best when it was most difficult far too often this has been ignored and maybe it's because i am a husband that that i'd rather sit here and talk about this than i would about wives submitting because i just i look at the way husbands are today and i just don't see us being the loving people that we are supposed to be now let's let's be honest and serious this doesn't mean that we're pushovers Jesus has never been a pushover towards his church. He gives us instructions. He gives us rules. He tells us how he wants things to be done. Sometimes he will pull away his presence from our midst if we're not being obedient to him. And so it doesn't mean that we as husbands are to be pushovers who say, Hey, honey, do whatever you want. I'm just here to love you and forgive you. That's not true. It means that we love. It means that we lead. It means that we do what we need to do to see the wife's best interest come to fruition. It means that we take a stand at certain points to say honey that's not the way we're going to do it because that is not what is best for you and best for our marriage it means that we step up and we do our jobs as it is written in scripture wives are supposed to submit to that look at us as leaders but we need to start being leaders if we are going to ask our wives to truly do that and so jesus excuse me paul here is not talking about first primarily husbands and wives and all of that but we see some of the greatest principles for a marriage and that is that women are supposed to be submissive respect look up to their husbands say you are more important in this marriage than i am and a husband is supposed to look right back at their wife and say you know what thank you for being that way but i'm gonna do everything i can to lower myself and make sure that i'm leading and loving and doing everything for the best of this family specifically you And if we will see that again in our country, if we will listen to these words and just take the secondary point and apply them to our lives, then marriages will get better. But we have is this psychobabble and this misunderstanding of what it means to be a couple. And we disregard the words of the Bible and we don't think about them. We don't put them into practice. We don't act on them. We say, well, my marriage is bad because they're doing the wrong thing. 
Well, they're more important than you. So you need to look at yourself and say, what can I do to fix it? That's what you need to say to yourself. But the real point here is Jesus. What he has done for the church. Because it says just, listen to this, just as Christ loved the church. This is just so important for us to understand. We separate too much church and Jesus. And I know we sing about him on Sunday mornings and stuff like that. But here's the thing. This is, Jesus is not against us. He, he's not working against us. He's looking down at the church. And he's looking at it as a husband looks at their wife the day that they get married. The picture is that Jesus is in heaven and he's waiting for the end when he will come back as the bridegroom and he will take us up into heaven to be with him forever. Now, here, here's let me just pause time. Uh, I read a book once that talked about why men don't stay in churches nearly as often as women. And one of the big reasons is that we sing these romantic songs to a guy named Jesus and it feels weird as a man. And in our church, we do pretty, pretty good generally uh, about connecting with men. And uh, I generally find that our men connect and then they stay and, uh, and they like it here. And so we do pretty good, but we don't want to ruin all that today. And so let me just, let me just at this point remind you that this is metaphorical. Okay. We don't actually have a romantic relationship with a man named Jesus. We have a relationship with him in church that is demonstrated by the love of a husband for their wife, but it's not anything more than that. So keep that in mind, but understand, understand that it is one of the most profound things that you can imagine that Jesus loves his church. Now, here's here's the awesome part. I do weddings, right? And uh, I'm not sure if you if you under I get the best view at a wedding uh, when I do them. It's the only thing I like about doing weddings. I hate everything else. I hate knowing that if I mess up, then everybody will remember it forever. But if I do awesome, which I'm pretty good at them, then nobody will ever remember that. That is terrible. Everybody will talk about the bride even if she does nothing right and I do everything perfectly. They'll still talk about her. And how good she looked. I could wear the nicest suit, just be so well put together, have a perfect hair day, and they're still talking about somebody else. It all is stressful. You're fighting, I'm just ranting now. You're finding like the bride's dad in the bar before you start the, the wedding ceremony. You're like hunting them down. It's like way outside of your pay grade. And you're thinking like, what did I sign up for? But there is one thing that I like about doing weddings. And that is this. When the bride comes out, I have this view that I currently have right here. Every single other person has an angle on the bride. They do not look directly at her. Even the groom, who's generally here, has a slight angle. And I look directly into the eyes of the bride. And there is something, this is going to make me sound so girly, uh, but there is something just beautiful and awesome and really almost magical about the way that a woman looks on their wedding day. It, it is like this kind of thing that people say, you know, like we say babies are cute, but generally they're not. They're like gross. Uh, <laughs> but there's truth about the bride thing, because when she comes out, she walks down that aisle and I'm looking directly into her face. There's something different. There's a glow. There is an excitement. There's just something beautiful and awesome about it. When it says that Jesus loves the church, this body of believers all around the world that gather each week in his presence to worship him and glorify him and to hear from him. 
reminds me of that. I think Jesus is just looking at us as a congregation and all the congregations around the world that are truly his followers. And he's looking down on us and he sees something beautiful and something magical. It's like that that groom who's up here looking down at his bride, can't see her as well as I do, but he's looking at her and he's thinking, oh man, I remember how hard I worked to meet her and I remember how I stumbled over my words that first day. I think Jesus is looking down at us who gather in his presence and he's going, I remember how much I gave so that you could be this thing. I remember how much it cost me and how much I loved you, how much I had to suffer in order to make that happen. He loves us. It's too forgotten. We just, I, I don't, we separate church and Jesus too often. We make church one thing and then we talk about Jesus, but this is his bride. We are his bride. And he is looking down and he loves us and he cares about us. And here's some things that he does because of that. First of all, he sacrificed. He died to make us holy. Holy is a word that is used often but rarely understood. It means to be set apart. It's a word that can also mean sanctified. And what it means is simply this, that Jesus, through his death, made it so that believers are something different and unique from the world. In the Old Testament, it talked about how the Jewish people were set apart. And in the New Testament, we read this in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.2 says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, same word, in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Jesus gave his life so that we could be his in a unique and special and different way. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it's not an impersonal thing like Jesus died for the world. We get that. But no, Jesus died so that you could be part of this thing that he loves unconditionally and passionately like a bridegroom loves their bride. He also is cleaning us with water through the word. This is important. He wants to make us. He is making us more holy, more set apart. He is working in our lives through this thing that we call church so that we can become more like him, so that we can become less dirty, so that we can remove sin from our lives and live the lives that God has called us to even before we were born. And here's the goal. Pay attention to this goal. The goal is that we would become radiant, that we would be radiant. Verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed, they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And Paul kind of mixes metaphors here, right? Kind of goes from this bride idea to this body idea. And we'll talk about the body in a couple weeks here. Uh, but let's just focus on the bride thing. So here, here's two things that Jesus is doing for us. You need to understand this. If you're part of the church, if you're a believer who gathers in the presence of God weekly, here's two things that Jesus is doing for you. He wants to feed you. That is to nourish you. That is to say, to bring to full maturity. And he wants to do that through church. 
The other thing he's doing for us is he's caring for us. This word literally refers to like heating um, by drawing somebody next to you. It's a word that would be used for an incubator, really, uh, if it was being used in a modern context. Jesus wants to draw you into himself, draw you close to him, and comfort you when life is difficult. You say, well, what's the point of the church? For me. If it's all about what I can do for others, then what's the point of being a part of this thing called church? Well, here it is. Jesus is working in the church to do two things. To draw you closer to him. To move you forward as a human being, as a follower of God. To comfort you. That's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, because don't you, if you just stopped and you admitted for a second, wouldn't you say, like, you don't live the life that you want to live? You're not as nice to your spouse as you should be. You cut corners at work a little more than you think you should. You just aren't as nice to people at the grocery store when they say things that you don't like. Wouldn't you just kind of, if you could admit it, just say, I'm not exactly the person that I want to be every single day. And Jesus is working through the church to make you into that person. And wouldn't all of you go, well, there's hurt and there's difficulty and there's things, Chad. And so you told me to come here on Sunday morning and really pour out my life, but... but I don't, that's hard because I'm struggling and there's things that hurt inside of me and what is happening for me in this congregation. And Paul tells us that Jesus through the church in the church is just trying to pull you in, keep you warm, and keep you safe. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about... Christ and his church. Genesis 2.24, describing the first man and woman, says this, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's talking about marriage, Adam and Eve specifically. Jesus reiterates this, Mark 10.7-9, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is a profound mystery, right? I mean, what does that even mean? How do two things become one thing? How do a husband and wife become one? They still look like two people. You can still have conversations with them at separate times. They can go different directions. I mean, in a physical, literal sense, they they don't seem to or appear to be one person or anything like that. And so the mystery is profound, but that does not make it any less true. When a person marries their spouse, they become one. In this regard, Paul is talking about the church and Jesus. He's saying that we, in some way that we probably will never understand until we get to heaven, are so integrated and connected to Jesus through this marriage to him, through being a part of the church, that we are actually one. Now this has profound importance for married couples, right? I mean, when you start to think of your spouse as you, then you start to treat them differently. Never yelled at myself in the mirror. Actually meant it, right? Never done that. I've never, I don't generally disrespect myself. I don't generally, you know, just disregard what I have to say. Like, Chad, don't be stupid. I mean, come on, I don't do that. If I did, you would think I was crazy. And so when, when it talks about a husband and wife being one, that's important, right? I mean, it, it changes how we treat each other. It, it changes our, our view of adultery, how big of a deal that is. 
it really changes everything, but it's also important when it comes to the topic of Jesus. Listen to Jesus in his last prayer before he goes to the cross and dies. John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me. I've loved them even as you have loved me. And here is the thing that Paul is saying. The church is united with Christ. And we'll see later that we should be his body to this earth. We should be his temple on this earth. And we should be his family on this earth. But in some very real, very spiritual way, we are totally and utterly connected to Jesus when we are part of the church. Because we are his bride. Now here is what we need to think about and understand and grasp. I look at the modern church today. And this is forgotten, right? Most often when we talk about churches, we talk about the church family. And we really hang on that metaphor. But we forget about this idea of being the bride of Jesus. And, and here, here's why I think it is so important to remember this connection. It reminds us, first of all, That Jesus loves us tremendously. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to do well. And that we ought to love and worship and glorify and be connected to him the best that we possibly can. But I think even more than that, it must make us as an organization of church say, we want to do what Jesus wants us to do. I think that all over the world, churches are committing adultery. And they are looking at church and they are saying, well, how does what's his name, that pastor that's really succeeded, how is he doing church? I mean, how did they grow the church to 2,000 people? What did they do? And then they go and they read his book and they, and they go to a seminar and then they try to do church just like that. All the while, Jesus is in heaven going, I want you to succeed. I created the church. Won't you just listen to me and do it the way that I have asked you to do it? And I think that churches everywhere are committing adultery and they're saying, well, Jesus, that's great that you that you died so that you could be in this relationship with us and that we are one. No big deal. That's awesome. But we really want to succeed. And so let me go over there to talk about how this guy wants me to do it. I don't care what you want me to do. I think that's happening far too much. I think we look at the modern American church and it's all about, I'm going to do what works. I'm going to do what they're doing. I'm going to do what seems best to me. We even ask those questions in our congregation sometimes. Well, what do you think about it? Well, first we must ask, hey, what does our groom think about it? I mean, what does the person who gave his life to be married to us say about this issue? That's an important question. Here's the last thing. When you recognize that you are part of the church and that the goal of church and you individually is that Jesus can care for you and grow you and that he wants to present you at the wedding day when he returns as this radiant, beautiful thing and you are part of it, then you must look at your life and you must ask yourself, is it radiant for Jesus? In the Old Testament, God would look down it is Israelite people, his Jewish people, the people that were his. And when there was sin, even from certain individuals, he would look down and he would be angry. 
just read in my own personal reading a couple days ago that they went to battle right after they had crossed into the promised land that God was giving them. And they'd been beating all these mighty kingdoms, just destroying them, wiping them off the face of the earth, really. And they went and they tried to fight this other kingdom and they lost. And they came back and, and they said, God, what happened there? I mean, you've given us this land and you told us to fight people. What happened? And God said, well, there was a couple of guys who disobeyed what I had told you. And they took some things from the last kingdom that you had that you had taken over. And they are in possession of it. And so I turned my back on you. With that in mind, I want you to think about your life. And if God is saying through the church, I want to present... I want to present the church as my radiant bride, glowing and beautiful when I come back. And you must, in my opinion, look at your life and say, am I allowing for God to make his church more radiant through the life that I live? Or am I a black spot? Am I a smudge on the church? Do I make the church look bad? Or am I adding to the beauty? Because Christ is looking down and he loves us and he sees us and he says, that's the person I love. But too many of us are running around and really just being impure. Saying, well, that's great that you love me and you care about me and you want to feed me, but I have my own thing going. And we are in some ways prostituting ourselves to the world. We're running around saying, well, Jesus, I know you think I'm the most important, but I think my job is the most important. Or I think this relationship is the most important. Or I think this activity is the most important. And I know, I know with my heart that Jesus is in heaven and he's looking down saying, I want you to be radiant, but you're turning your back on me. Why? I'm up here. I died for you. I gave my life for you. I'm waiting for the day when we are together in perfect unity and harmony for all eternity. And you are acting like you don't even know me. And so when you look at Jesus as the groom of this thing called church that you come into when you give your life to Jesus, then it must make you ask the question if you're taking it seriously, am I adding to the radiance of the church? Or am I being unfaithful to the groom who loves me and cares about me, wants to see me succeed? When we as individuals start to say, what can I do to be more radiant, to be more beautiful for this person who loves me, this God who cares about me, Then the church moves forward and we become this spotless, beautiful bride ready for the wedding day. Will you pray with me? Lord, it's it's an awesome metaphor, Jesus, uh, because it reminds us of your tremendous love for us. God, I think sometimes we just do church thinking it's, you know, something we do and we we dismiss it and... uh, kind of forget about how awesome it is that we would be loved by you in such a just an amazing profound way like a like a groom loves their bride and and i I would pray jesus that that at creekside we would uh we would set aside the forgetfulness about that and and we would look to you as our groom lord and and we would remember that you love us and, and, and God, we would love you back because of that tremendous love. I pray that we would be faithful to you, Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray as a church, when, when we have meetings and we talk about what's the next step and what we want to do and all of that stuff, God, I pray that it would always be driven by what you want because we know that someday you're coming back to get us. 
Lord, let us not be a church that says what works, what seems best, what's best for marketing, but always a church that says, first, what does Jesus want? And then, God, I pray for all of us as individuals who are part of this this whole collection of people who make up the bride. I pray, God, that you would that we would allow for you, God, to grow us, to draw us into yourself. And, God, we would cling tightly back to you. Just live lives that you're so proud of when you look down. Live lives, God, that reflect the fact that we know someday you will come and you will take us to be with you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Jesus created the church uh, by giving his life for the church. And truth is, all grooms should lay down their life for their spouses. But Jesus literally gave his life so that we could come into a relationship with him and be the church. And so uh, this morning we're going to take communion because of that. And as you take this, I really ask that in your heart of hearts you would remember the amazing sacrifice that Jesus made for you. And today as you remember it, don't just think, well, yeah, he died, but think this. Jesus died for me because he loves me like a husband loves their bride. He wanted to have a relationship with me so much that he didn't just buy a ring and spend a whole bunch of money and woo me a little bit, but he literally came out of heaven so that he could pay the penalty of hell. He hung on the cross. He suffered hell. And he did that for you because he wanted this relationship with you. And so will you come forward and will you grab the communion elements and will you remember today that Jesus loves you more than any other love the world has ever known?